Hello, I'm Caitlin Andrzejczyk, and this is the Endocrine News Podcast. Thank you for downloading this podcast, a free service of the Endocrine Society. In this episode, we talk about nuclear receptor biology with Laurel Coons, a postdoctoral fellow at the National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences. Dr. Coons was the first author on a paper published one year ago in endocrinology titled DNA Sequence Constraints Define Functionally Active Steroid Nuclear Receptor Binding Sites in Chromatin. The Endocrine Society is a sponsor of the upcoming Great Lakes Nuclear Receptor Conference in Minneapolis, and we are excited to share this nuclear receptor-focused interview with you today. Also, I will have a research resource for you, along with a trivia question. Stay tuned. Today's interview with Dr. Coons focuses on the sequencing constraints in nuclear receptor binding and the need for further research into protein-DNA interactions that govern transcriptional regulation. The Endocrine Society publishes a variety of molecular endocrinology research. If you are interested in learning more, check out our newest thematic collection of papers that span the last eight years of nuclear receptor biology. Go to www.endocrine.org podcast to find this episode and click on the link to this thematic issue. In this curated collection, we include research articles on the role of nuclear receptors in the development of disease, we examine species-specific differences in transcription factor binding and function, and identify the molecular chaperone, FKBP51, as a regulator of PPAR gamma in white adipose tissue. Additional research articles examine the role of estrogens in neurotransmission, identify the cisstrome and transcriptome of FOXO1, and its transcriptional regulation of the progesterone receptor, and they also investigate the role of nuclear receptors as molecular sensors of various environmental chemicals. There are several review articles in this collection, including an examination of post-translational modifications that affect lipid-regulated nuclear receptors, a review of the P160 family of nuclear receptor coactivators, and a review of steroid hormones that regulate stem cells. All the articles in this collection are free to download. Since we're talking about nuclear receptors today, my trivia question is, what did the cDNA sequence identification of the earliest studied nuclear receptors indicate about their functional characteristics? I will have the answer for you after the interview. Today, we are excited to talk with Laurel Coons. She is a postdoctoral fellow at the National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences. Dr. Coons received her PhD in pharmacology and cancer biology from Duke University under the direction of Dr. Donald McDonnell, and she was an NIH Graduate Partnerships Program Scholar under Dr. Kenneth Korach. She was the first author on a paper published in Endocrinology in the summer of 2017, titled DNA Sequence Constraints Define Functionally Active Steroid Nuclear Receptor Binding Sites in Chromatin. We have a link to the article on our webpage, www.endocrine.org podcast. It's a real pleasure to speak with you. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Laurel, your paper reveals some fascinating results that may really change how we think about how transcription is regulated and how genes are turned on and off. But before we dive into the details of your paper, can you first provide us with the big picture result of your study? Sure. So as you know, transcription factors are proteins that direct gene expression. And they do this by binding to regulatory regions on the DNA to increase or decrease the level of transcription. 
So despite there being a great deal of interest in understanding how transcription factors control gene expression, we still don't know how transcription factors choose to associate with the precise genomic locations that they do, so basically where they associate with the DNA and why, or what determines whether that transcription factor binding event ultimately affects transcriptional output. So within the past decade, there has been a dramatic increase in the use of genome-wide technologies for studying transcriptional regulation, as well as identifying where a transcription factor physically interacts with a genome. These studies have revealed that transcription factor binding is widespread, with thousands to tens of thousands of binding events on the genome. However, our understanding of how or if each one of these transcription factor binding events contributes to transcription remains a challenge for nearly every field in biology. Basically, we really just need to understand precisely how the binding of transcription factors to the genome turns genes on and off. This information is vital for understanding how different cell types function in health and disease. So coming back to your question, the big picture result of our study is the demonstration that transcription factors can interact with DNA in a transcriptionally inactive state. Specifically, we show that the majority of transcription factor binding events on the genome are not linked directly to transcriptional output. This is important because previous causal relationships and their associated conclusions that were established by correlating the levels of a given transcript to the level of transcription factor recruitment to the genome were premature, as they do not demonstrate that the transcription factor binding event was actually linked or caused the transcriptional outcome. It's been estimated that the total number of human transcription factors in the genome is around 2,500. What types of transcription factors were included in your study? So in this study, we use the steroid nuclear receptors. These are a class of ligand-activated transcription factors that are responsible for sensing the presence of steroid hormones like estrogen or testosterone and modulating gene expression in response. And what we show is that although steroid nuclear receptors associate with the genome at thousands of locations, only a small proportion of those binding events is actually associated with transcriptional output, and that this functionality is restricted to DNA sequences that vary from the consensus palindromic element by one or two nucleotides. And thus, it is the DNA sequence constraints that define which steroid nuclear receptor binding events are functionally active. This is a complicated story. While I imagine many in our audience know what transcription factors and nuclear receptors are, can we start with some basic definitions and descriptions of these molecules and why they are important? So steroid nuclear receptors are transcription factors that are activated by the binding of steroid hormones. The steroid nuclear receptor family includes two divisions, the estrogen receptors and the ketosteroid receptors. The estrogen receptors are estrogen receptor alpha and beta, and the ketosteroid receptors include the anagen receptor, the glucocorticoid receptor, the mineral corticoid receptor, and the progesterone receptor. The reason the steroid nuclear receptor family is important is because they regulate a number of physiological functions involved in human health such as homeostasis, reproduction, development, and metabolism. Their critical role in these basic physiological processes also allows for the development of therapeutic agents and treatment approaches for diseases linked to these processes. So Laurel, you mentioned that steroid nuclear receptors are activated by the binding of steroid hormones. Can you tell us a little more about these steroid hormones? So the endogenous steroid hormones can be grouped into two classes, the sex steroids and the corticosteroids. The sex steroids include the estrogens, the anadrens, and progesterone. And as their name suggests, the sex steroids are involved in the function of the reproductive organs. 
The corticosteroids include the glucocorticoids, such as cortisol, which helps regulate metabolism and helps your body respond to stress in fight-or-flight mode. And the mineral corticoids, such as aldosterone, which is involved in the regulation of electrolyte and water balance. You mentioned that transcription factors direct gene expression by binding to regulatory regions on the DNA. What are these regulatory regions for the steroid nuclear receptors? So response elements are specific DNA sequences that are binding sites for transcription factors. The estrogen receptors bind to the estrogen response element, or ERE, and the ketosteroid receptors bind to the hormone response element, or HRE. So the ERE and the HRE are both a 13-nucleotide-long DNA sequence consisting of a 5-nucleotide-long inverted repeat with a 3-nucleotide-long spacer in between. Thus, there are 10 primary positions. The ERE is GGTCANNN followed by its inverted repeat, TGACC. The HRE is GAACANNN followed by its inverted repeat, TGTTC. So the classical model of steroid nuclear receptor function has had the majority of chromatin interactions taking place in the promoters of target genes. Your study shows something different. Can you tell us about your initial hypothesis and how you arrived there? Sure. So the classical textbook model of steroid nuclear receptor action basically says that the hormone binds to the steroid nuclear receptor, and then the hormone and steroid nuclear receptor complex binds to its response element located in the promoter of responsive genes to either stimulate or, in some cases, inhibit transcription of those genes. So historically, the study of steroid nuclear receptor action was actually limited to the promoters of well-characterized target genes. So therefore, it makes sense why this model would have been reinforced, because it did make sense based on what we knew and what our capabilities were at that time. So it wasn't until the introduction and widespread usage of these genome-wide technologies that we began to realize that our, you know, classical textbook model of steroid nuclear receptor action was incomplete. So by now it's been, you know, well established that the vast majority of steroid nuclear receptor chromatin interacting events do not occur near promoters. Instead, they tend to be found in introns and intergenic regions, often very far distances away from their nearest transcription start site, which we refer to as enhancers. And considering that introns and intergenic regions make up 96% of the genome, the fact that you would find steroid nuclear receptors predominantly bound there makes sense. Talking about the use of genome-wide technologies and other new techniques to study gene expression, can you tell us about the methods you use to identify where these specific steroid nuclear receptors interact with DNA? So ChIP-seq is a very popular lab technique that is used to identify where a protein associates with DNA. How it works is that living cells are treated with a cross-linking reagent to stabilize the protein-DNA interactions. Then, an antibody is used to selectively precipitate a protein of interest and the DNA complexes associated with it. The goal of ChIP-seq data analysis is to find those genomic regions that are enriched in these precipitated DNA fragments. Regions of high sequencing read density are referred to as peaks, which represent the genomic locations that are inferred to be occupied by the protein. So in this study, we used our own data, together with all publicly available ChIP-seq datasets of steroid nuclear receptors and their collaborating factors in a wide variety of mouse tissues and human cell lines. 
So one unique aspect of the study is that every data set was analyzed across a wide spectrum of peak selection criteria, starting from a low selection criteria, requiring the tag density at peaks to be fourfold greater than the surrounding region, called L4, which would result in a large number of peaks being called, all the way up to a high peak calling criteria, L20, which would result in very few peaks being called. The reason I use multiple peak selection criteria is because I had no reason to assume that one peak calling parameter was better than another. And importantly, the conclusions were the same regardless of the peak selection criteria. So there are a number of different motif discovery algorithms available to look for in rich DNA sequences within the ChIP-seq peaks. However, because I also wanted to understand how each output or conclusion was being obtained, I also obtained the location coordinates of each consensus ERE and HRE palindromic element in the genome, as well as the location coordinates for the three alternative nucleotide possibilities at each of the 10 primary positions in the 13 nucleotide consensus ERE and HRE palindromic elements. Thus, this includes 30 DNA sequences that we call one nucleotide variants. This was also done for all 405 two-nucleotide variants and all 3,240 three-nucleotide variants. By overlapping the location coordinates of these DNA elements with the location coordinates of the chip-seq peaks in a dataset, I would know the absolute number of chip-seq peaks that contain each DNA element, which could then be compared to the number of peaks identified by the motif discovery algorithms. It was this double-check approach that was key to identifying that functionality was restricted to elements that vary from the consensus ERE and HRE palindromic elements by one or two nucleotides. Importantly, the motif discovery algorithms were unable to discern this level of detail in the sequence analysis. In addition, the occurrence of one nucleotide variant, ERE's or HRE's, in the genome far exceeds the number of steroid nuclear receptor chromatin interacting events detected in ChIP-seq experiments and thus these transcription factors are interacting with far fewer genomic regions than would be expected. And what that tells us is that only a small fraction of the near consensus DNA sequences occurring in the genome are occupied by a transcription factor in a given cell type at a given moment. This emphasizes the importance of chromatin accessibility and nucleosome occupancy as major determinants for cell type-specific steroid nuclear receptor signaling. Furthermore, there is no preference of the ERE or HRE DNA sequences in the genome toward any specific genomic feature, such as promoters, something one would expect based on the classical textbook model of steroid nuclear receptor action. There was a variety of cellular and animal models used in this study. Can you describe some of them? Sure. So in our laboratory, Sylvia Hewitt had previously published on a mouse model where the estrogen receptor was mutated in the DNA binding domain, the part of a transcription factor that allows it to bind to DNA sequences. So what was very unique about this mouse model, which we called ER-alpha EAAE, was that from a phenotypic perspective, it was indistinguishable from the ER-alpha knockout mouse model. Furthermore, there is no change in gene expression, either induction or repression, following treatment with estrogen in EAAE. So this is important because it tells us that a functional DNA binding domain is required for all estrogen receptor-dependent transcriptional activity. And thus, any indirect DNA binding activity, such as tethering, cannot independently initiate gene transcription in response to estrogen. These results were also observed in another mouse model named GRDIM, where the glucocorticoid receptor was also mutated in its DNA binding domain. And likewise, GRDIM mice were transcriptionally unresponsive to endogenous glucocorticoids. Unexpectedly, the number of chromatin interacting events on the genome were highly similar between these mutant mouse models and their wild-type counterparts. 
Thus, the fact that these DNA binding domain mutant models could still interact with chromatin, yet they lack hormone-dependent transcriptional activity, highlights the fact that steroid nuclear receptors can interact with chromatin in a transcriptionally inactive state. And thus, the majority of steroid nuclear receptor chromatin interacting events on the genome identified via ChIP-seq studies are not linked directly to transcriptional events. And obviously, this observation would lead to the question of what's different between where the DNA binding domain mutant models interact with the genome and where the wild type interacts with the genome. So other models used in the paper include one named ER-alpha-KIKO, and he's pretty cool because he's another estrogen receptor DNA binding domain mutant mouse model. But because of the specific mutations made in his DNA binding domain, his ability to bind ERE DNA sequences has been greatly reduced, but he has now acquired the ability to bind HRE DNA sequences and thus inappropriately activate some non-estrogen regulated genes. And thus highlighting the fact that although his DNA binding domain has been disrupted, his hormone binding ability and his coactivator recruitment ability and his ability to turn genes on and off has not been disrupted. Additionally, there are some antigen receptor DNA binding domain mutant models, as well as some primary prostate tumors that are still sensitive to antigen deprivation versus some that have required resistance. There is also a few constitutively active antigen receptor mutants. Um, these are commonly used to model prostate cancer resistance and also a antigen receptor simulation mutant, which proliferates faster than the wild type. And again, what you'd be looking for is differences in where these models associate with the genome versus where their wild type counterparts do. Okay, let's get into your results. Looking at these data sets, what did you find? What are the sites that influence actual gene expression? So what these models revealed is that only a small fraction of all steroid nuclear receptor chromatin interacting events is associated with transcriptional output. And the genomic locations that were different between the mutant models and their wild-type counterparts contained either the perfect consensus palindromic element or a DNA element that varied by one or two nucleotides. And thus, we have defined that group as NRFEs, nuclear receptor functional enhancers. And to further confirm, we looked at all genomic features that have been correlated with enhancer activation, including enhancer RNA transcription, RNA polymerase occupancy, as well as recruitment of other co-regulators and transcription factors like P300. And for these, what we were looking for is what genomic locations changed between having no hormone and hormone added. And obviously, it was only locations that included NRFEs. It's important to note that the components of the transcription factor co-regulator complex recruited to individual NRFE loci are not equivalent. Thus, further investigation into the different components at each individual location will be helpful in understanding transcription robustness and sustainability between different genes. So in the paper, there are over 1,300 data sets. They are each analyzed across at least five different peak selection criteria. So we are talking well over 6,500 data points included in this paper. In your paper, you discuss many new findings about the mechanisms that govern binding and activity. Would you like to expand on any of these? Sure. So one of my favorite sections of the paper is the very last section where we talk about hormone-induced gene repression. So we've already discussed that all hormone-induced gene repression requires steroid nuclear receptor binding to NRFEs. So what we show in this very last section is that the binding of transcription factors to the genome causes redistribution of other transcription factors and co-regulators from sites that are undergoing active transcription. So now this makes sense of why when we treat with hormone, we observe that the number of genes induced by that hormone is the same as the number of genes repressed by that hormone. So what this suggests is that in response to hormone, steroid nuclear receptors bind the NRFEs, resulting directly in gene induction and the co-regulators that are recruited to those NRFE sites are being redistributed from sites that are undergoing active transcription. And thus, this redistribution process results in repression of the genes that are being driven by the sites that are being recruited from. So I think that's pretty cool about the hormone-induced repression. 
Can you tell us a little bit more about the location of steroid nuclear binding sites and the genes that are affected by them? So when I began this project, I was absolutely convinced that I would be able to find some type of pattern that related where a steroid nuclear receptor bound and which gene was impacted by that binding event. So the first thing I did is I took the entire genome and I cut it into 150 base pair increments, you know, the average size of a chip seek peak. And then I asked the question, what is the chance of the closest gene being an estrogen regulated gene, whether that be induced or repressed? So what this tells me is if I were to place my finger anywhere on the genome at random, this is the probability that the closest gene is an estrogen regulated gene. So the next question is, does knowing where the estrogen receptor interacts with the DNA increase our probability that the closest gene is an estrogen regulated gene? Not significantly. And this was independent of peak robustness, what type of ERE DNA element was in the peak, or the proximity of the peak to or within a gene. So what this analysis did was really highlight the fact that linear juxtaposition is not the guiding principle in driving, you know, where a transcription factor binds the DNA and what gene is directly impacted by that binding event. And this does make sense because the interaction of a transcription factor binding site with the transcription start site requires bending of the DNA double helix in order to bring the sites near each other, as well as twisting to bring the sites to the correct base of the DNA. Thus, DNA distance is required. Therefore, in order for one to assign a transcription factor binding site to the expression of a specific gene requires the identification of the enhancer-promoter interactions. And because it has been shown that the majority of the enhancer-promoter interactions are established during cellular differentiation, it would be productive to create maps of the pre-existing enhancer-promoter interactions for numerous cell types and tissues. So what are some of the next steps? So in my next study, we describe how transcription factors distinguish their own DNA elements from a large number of similar DNA sequences in the genome to ensure specific transcriptional and cellular responses. So in this current paper, we show that steroid nuclear receptor functionality is restricted to NRFEs, but we haven't explained why this is happening. And what we demonstrate in this next study is that the binding of transcription factors on genomic DNA follows inversion symmetry. What this means is that the number of transcription factor binding events at a particular DNA element is equivalent to the number of binding events at its reverse complement DNA element on the single-stranded genome. For example, let's say that you find that the estrogen receptor binds the 1A1 nucleotide variant ERE 700 times across the genome. Then you will also find that the estrogen receptor binds the 10T1 nucleotide variant ERE 700 times across the genome. In addition, we also demonstrate that the specific DNA elements that transcription factors bind in the genome is determined by an internal inversion symmetry within the DNA element, which means that the binding is determined by the position of the variant within the DNA element and its reverse complement position. For example, if you see that the estrogen receptor likes to bind DNA sequences where the variant is in the three position, then as we just discussed, you will find the same number of estrogen receptor binding events at DNA sequences where the variant is in the eight position, and what that tells you is that the favorite two nucleotide variant ERE's that the estrogen receptor likes to bind to are going to have variants at the 3 and 8 position. And importantly, these DNA binding rules that are determined by the internal inversion symmetry within the DNA element extends to DNA elements far beyond where functionality stops. And thus, the apparent excess of non-functional chromatin interacting events reflect more than just general chromatin accessibility and the retention time of the transcription factor at these non-functional DNA elements is not long enough to activate transcription. And finally, we also demonstrate that the population of every DNA element in the single-stranded genome is equivalent to the population of its reverse complement DNA element in the single-stranded genome.
and thus the inversion symmetry observed for transcription factor DNA binding represents an inherent inversion symmetry structure for all DNA elements in the genome. And the study includes the population count of over 1.4 trillion DNA elements, an analysis that required a tremendous amount of computer resources and a very talented computer systems analyst like Adam is. We've certainly covered a lot of science here, but before we wrap up, I want to quickly ask you about your science projects outside of the lab. So a few other areas that I've spent some time exploring includes genetic diagnostic testing in patients. This curiosity arose when a friend sent me a diagnostic test report and asked if I could explain to her what it meant. Upon analysis of the report, I noticed that the lab had made a significant error in the interpretation of the identified DNA variant, and had that error not occurred, her child would very likely still be alive today. And this occurred several years ago, but still to this day, the lack of accountability and transparency across this field is utterly shocking. And beyond that, what is also very apparent is the massive breakdown in the transfer of information from the lab bench to bedside and patient care. So as far as a few other science endeavors, I have more recently been introducing the study of genomics to students in high schools. And basically, as we enter this new precision medicine era, where DNA sequencing will be routine preventative care, it's important to educate them on the impacts this will have on them as young adults, including both the risk and benefits. And if people want, how can they learn more about your work or follow you? So I have very recently started posting about all different aspects of science on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at Laurel Coons. For our trivia question, I asked, what did the cDNA sequence identification of the earliest studied nuclear receptors indicate about their functional characteristics? The answer? Some of the earliest work performed as this field was emerging examined the sequences of nuclear receptors and indicated that there were clear functional and structural features. These included DNA and ligand binding sites, as well as transactivation domains. That's all for this episode. Thank you for listening to the Endocrine News Podcast. To learn more, visit www.endocrine.org podcast. There you can find this episode and some helpful links. Don't forget to let us know what you want to hear on the podcast. Write to us at podcast at endocrine.org. We are still collecting your feedback about preconception health and counseling, specifically what men who are interested in becoming fathers can do before conception for their own health and for the health of their future children. Email us at podcast at endocrine.org to let us know your thoughts. We will read highlights soon. You can subscribe to Endocrine News Podcasts on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to leave a review on iTunes. Good reviews help make the podcast easier to find when new listeners search. Thanks again for listening. Endocrine News Podcasts are a free service of the Endocrine Society. To learn more or to become a member, visit the Society's website at www.endocrine.org.